0: And there's something you haven't heard in a while, book of Romans. I'm going to ask you to go to chapter 8 if you would, Romans chapter 8, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Why I know some of you are thinking right now, where's my parables? Well, we've been in the parables for a year, and I really felt strongly God pushing me towards Romans 8:28. So let me explain to you why. If ever there was a year that most people would like to throw away, it would be 2020, Right? Most people would like to say, I I don't want that. I don't want to repeat that. Don't want to go there again. Here's a thought for you. What if 2021 is worse than 2020? Hmm. What do you do then? Most people look at 2020 with a sense of disdain. I'm going to give you a new view on it. And I'm going to take you to Romans 8.28 to do that. If ever there was a time for the church to be the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, it's 2020. This particular year, um, my wife announced to me prior to Thanksgiving that we were going to be getting our Christmas decorations up early. Normal, normally, it's Thanksgiving uh, around that time, and she wanted it done in advance. And Lori likes lights, and so uh, around our house are trees and bushes and flowers and things that are lit up, and you can go room to room to room, and there's lots of bright, shiny lights, so much to the degree that I'm afraid that our light meter is just spinning out of control, and so as soon as she ducks out of a room, I reach over and unplug a light, right, trying to keep that power bill down, but I get it. I get the reason, because if ever there's a reason to celebrate, the church has the reason to celebrate what Jesus did for us. And if ever there was a year to have a different perspective on what God's up to and what He's been doing, it's been 2020. And I know some of y'all would like to throw it away. I know some of you would like to say, I'd either like a do-over or I don't want to go through it again, thinking that maybe God bailed on you. You feel like that? That maybe God bailed on you? I want to give you this view. Let me start by asking you this question. What do you personally believe about God in regards to God having control over all things? What do you believe about him theologically? And if you're new to church, that's a term for your view, how you think intellectually about God. And I ask it for this reason, because you're about to see the greatest promise ever. And the promise comes from God. Look with me on the screen at Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good. A lot of people will stop right there, and they they don't finish the verse out, and they don't spend enough time with it to really understand what's being said. And and at first glance, you would have to agree, even after this morning, you're going to say the same thing. That is a breathtaking statement. It's breathtaking in its magnitude. It is absolutely overwhelming in its scope. It, It surpasses any guarantee that the world has to offer. There's no guarantee you can get on a refrigerator or on a microwave or on a television that can match the guarantee that God is saying here in Romans 8, 28. He's saying that he completely and he magnificently encompasses everything about a believer's life. Every single detail. So I'm asking yourself this morning, what do you believe about God? Do you believe that God's word, first of all, is true? Say amen if you do it's just a hint for you this morning, you're gonna need your amens this morning, okay? So get them on and get ready to use them. If you believe that God's word is true, does he truly, does he truly have control of all things? Uh, If you process this statement in the fullness of its meaning, it is an absolute infallible guarantee of the ultimate security. God begins by saying that in eternity past, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit predetermined in eternity past, not only that you would come into relationship with Him, but that one day you would be fully made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, no matter what. That's a commitment from God. I want to give you an example of the reality of the depth of Romans 8.28, and it comes from the life of Paul. It's a very appropriate demonstration because Paul's the one who wrote the book of Romans. Here's the background. In the books of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul lets us know that he saw things that God permitted him to see that he says are not fitting for a man to speak of. In other words, God gave him an opportunity, caught him up into the third heaven, meaning the heaven where God dwells. He says, whether physically or in the spirit, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. But I saw things that he wasn't permitted to speak of. But they were of such surpassing great revelations that God had to do something to Paul. And I want you to see that part on the screen. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He said that twice in one sentence, by the way. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, verse eight, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Verse nine, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Some of you feeling pretty weak right now? So a reminder from God. He does something in the midst of your weakness. Keep going with this verse. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. And I bet a lot of you can identify with these weaknesses he lists here. I know I can with insults with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties? For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Romans eight twenty eight is all about God's objective, and God's objective is about making you more like Jesus. So here's what I'm telling you, and I want you to carry out the door with you this morning. There is purpose in your pain. A lot of people watching from home right now, people watching from work, those of you in the auditorium, whatever you're walking through right now, if you're a believer in Jesus, there is a purpose in what you're going through. There's purpose in your pain. And many people say, I could go through a lot. Like I could take on a lot of pain if I knew if I knew that it was for Christ's sake, like what Paul's writing about here, for Christ's sake, when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's exactly what God's telling you through Romans 8. There is purpose in your pain. So if you haven't opened your Bibles yet to Romans chapter 8, maybe you have it electronically, you do want to do that. If you're at home, open your Bible up, go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we'll be in there together, and then we'll transition over to communion in just a minute. Look with me on the screen at this particular verse or at your own copy of God's Word. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is stating a basis for why you can have this confident expectation. And the basis is part of four core principles They're in your notes this morning. They're going to come up on the screen as well. Verses 24 through 29, Romans 8, 24 through 29, form a core of four purposes why you can have a confident expectation that even though 2020 seems like a total washout to the rest of the world, you can understand that God's working in the midst of it. And all four of these core purposes are based on the purposes of God. Let me show you the four up here on the screen. His purpose is in verse 24, that he will bring about a regeneration. He says, I'm gonna make everything new. He's gonna bring about a regeneration in hope that we have been saved, Paul writes about. And in verse 26, his purpose is that he's intimately aware of every need that you have. And he does respond, that's in verse 26. Here's the third one. This is the one we're looking at this morning. His fourth core. His purpose is that he's working in the midst of all the things going on in your life. He's going to bring them about together for good. That's verse 28. and verse 29, just looking ahead, we can't get into it, but there's another purpose in there in verse 29. His purpose is that he's conforming you. He's conforming us to the image of Jesus. And here's what it demands for you this morning. It demands that we define the word good in the way that God would define it. Not in the way that you and I would define it. In the terms that God is producing, not in our terms. If you believe that God knows your greatest good, would you say amen? Let me ask you one more time so you can say it a little more gusto. Do you believe that God knows your greatest good? Okay. If you believe that, then you have to define good based on God's terms. God knows your greatest goods. It's known to Him to the fullest degree possible, much better than we could ever possibly know our greatest good. He knows it. So, as a result, in pursuit of this final good, He may allow into your life relationship difficulties, financial difficulties, physical difficulties emotional difficulties in order to bring about your greatest good and sometimes it may not even be about you it might be about the people who are watching you you're a believer in Jesus you like to worship Jesus people are watching you it may not be only about you but rather the people who surround you who don't even know Jesus yet So in the big picture, Paul's writing, we know all things, the bitter things and the sweet things, all the hard things and the good things, they're working for our ultimate good. Maybe not for your immediate good, but for your ultimate good. In other words, all hardship is endurable because everything, even the most damning trial, that you're going through. God says, I'm working in the midst of that. You got a relationship that blew up this year? You got a cancer diagnosis you didn't expect? I know there's people who are watching us this morning who are watching from a hospital bed. It doesn't feel good in this moment. It doesn't feel like the immediate good is working to my benefit. God says, I'm in the midst of that. And the reason you can lean into this strength, we can't get into it, as I said, is in verse 29. It's a most massive pillar. It's telling you in verse 29 that God is omniscient. Here's another chance to say amen. Do you believe that God knows all things? Okay. Because He's omniscient, because He knows all things, Paul wrote verse 29 with a great degree of confidence, and he says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. These promises are built on God knowing. God knowing he has an omniscient capacity meaning God has everything under control. So let's break it down. Verse 28, just the first three words, and we know. These three words he stated with absolute certainty. And I want you to understand Paul is not stating that with personal opinion. It's not Mark's personal opinion. He backs it up with the authority of God's word. He's setting forth a reality based on the character and the nature of who God is. Let me give you three examples of that. Look with me on the screen. Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Or what about this one, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a great promise. I'm so glad that's true. First of all, because he's God, And therefore, he's not gonna change his mind about saving you and forgiving you of your sin. He's not gonna change his mind when you step up to heaven one day and say, you know what, I decided not to let you in. I, the Lord, do not change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's totally not like us. We change all the time. You're older than you were when you walked in the door this morning. We change constantly. God says He doesn't change. And here's the third one, Isaiah 46, 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So Paul's writing with God's own authority, we know beyond a doubt that every aspect of our life, and I'm talking about here in December of 2020, after watching your nation, your entire planet, go through what most people would say, I'd like to throw that away. I'd like a do-over on this. That in the midst of that, every aspect of our life here, 2020, and in all eternity, it is all in God's hand Here's what it means for you. Your life this morning is a display of God's good purposes. How you choose to react to it is absolutely, definitely up to you. But your life is a display of God's good purposes, His own purposes. And I'm right here with you. I'm here to say it's not always understood. It's certainly not experienced Experientially, we would say, no, I don't always get it because the circumstances in themselves may not feel good. I mean, here's a thought you need to keep in mind. It's because God takes these circumstances and he fuses them together in a way that you and I cannot do because his goal is to bring about his purposes. How you respond to it is definitely an issue. And I have to remind myself on a regular basis, God does not run this universe for the glory of Mark Kring. He runs it for the glory of God, right? He doesn't run it for the glory of you. He runs it for his own glory. We use the Greek language quite a bit here if you're new to New Hope, and we we use it to help us understand God's Word more deeply. And over the years, I've reminded you that when you see something written in the Bible in the present tense form, it means it's a continuing action. In a continuing action, we see something going on in Romans 8.28. It's not past as though it's a one-off. It's something that's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. Look with me at Romans 28 that way. 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. All things is written in the present tense in the Greek language. It's a continuous action. He's doing it right now in your life. Whatever trouble you walked in the door with this morning, whatever trouble you might face this week, whatever downturn there might be or upturn, God's causing that to work together. It it just makes you want to stop right at this moment and just calm your heart and just send up a silent cheer to God. Yay, God. I'm glad you got this in control because I don't. Thank you, God. God. Because what you should see so far at this point is God is definitely saying to you, he has not bailed on you just because things go bad in your life or because things go good in your life. We'll get into that more in a little detail in just a moment. He's actually working in every circumstance. So let's look at who's doing this. Break it down to two words. God causes. You see this on the screen? God causes. Let's just state the obvious. God is the subject here. He's the one causing everything to culminate in good. And he does it for a specific group of people, as you'll see in just a moment. That means it requires God's action to fulfill the promise. Here's why I point this out. You might have a copy of the King James Bible. and the King James Bible, it doesn't even say the name God in it. Actually, some of the more ancient texts don't have God causes all things. It doesn't mean that those translations are wrong. The more modern translations actually put God's name in there so that you can understand it a little bit better. Here's what's implicit within it. Something has to be causing the action. So in the King James Version, it actually just says, all things work together for good. More modern translations put the subject in there, God causes all things to work together for good for this reason. Things can't act on their own. This communion tray this morning can't get up and walk away. One of you would have to pick it up and carry it away. It's not possible. It's an item. It's a thing. There has to be a force behind it to pick it up and move it. It can't move on its own. God causes all things to work together for good. It requires God's action to fulfill the promise. So it cannot be that he's disinterested in your life. It can't be that he takes no interest whatsoever or he's removed from your situation. He has to be actively involved. So God causes, what does he cause? All things. Let's take those next two words. He causes all things. Let's go for what we understand this to be stating here. From a biblical perspective, what is God saying? Because Paul's saying you can have a biblical confidence in the sovereignty of God by asking yourself this question. Does God have all things in control or not? Is he in control or are you? Who's got control of these situations? And that's the most important question that we can ask as we take on Romans 8.28. How do the words all things apply to me? Because we're tempted to say, really? Like all things I want you to understand from a biblical perspective, all things is utterly comprehensive. There is no limit on it. From your flat tire that caused you to have to pull over on the side of the road to that loss of a job you were not expecting. Ask yourself this morning, is God at work in all the circumstances of your life? The Bible says he directs life in such a way that for those who love him, the outcome is always for good. And it's not saying that God prevents us from experiencing things that hurt. What Paul's writing is that God takes those things in a way that no one else can, and he fuses them together, ultimately for good, for his purposes. That causes me to understand that there is nothing occurring in heaven or on earth that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing that can happen that can separate me, because he has all things. So here's how you need to understand this. It means that although things are difficult to recognize, God can cause even evil, even the most wretched thing that happens to work for good, meaning the thorns and the thistles in your life. The thorns and the thistles are among all things and they feel like anything but good right now. There's a lot of things that happen in our life from our point of view that are outright evil. Like God, how could you possibly be in this? Yet God says in his infinite power he can turn even the worst to good. Let me give you three biblical examples. Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness and he had to do it for 40 years so that God could bring about his ultimate good purpose. And during that 40-year time, they're encountering scorpions and spiders and snakes, and they're walking through a desert that has no water coming out of it, and a lot of thorns and thistles along the way. God used slavery in Egypt to demonstrate his power, but not only to demonstrate his power, but to shape people so that they would be ready for that promised place of beauty when it became a reality. God refined them and prepared them along the way. Here's two more, Daniel. Daniel's thrown into a cave. I don't know if you ever thought of the lion's den that way, but that's the way they did it in Babylon. They opened up a hole in the ground, dropped him in a cave, rolled a stone over the top of the cave, and left him there to be consumed by the lions. You think it felt good that night when the lions were breathing their hot breath upon him? I know it didn't feel good in that moment. Was God at work? Was God using that? Absolutely. What about Joseph when he sold into slavery? 17 years. Because his brothers who meant it for evil... God was going to use it for good, 17 years. Among those years, he's in a dungeon, but God was at work. Joseph summed it up this way. I want you to look with me on the screen at Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. He's saying this to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Maybe you've looked ahead in your notes already this morning, you've, you've pulled them out, and you see this phrase that God, instead of turning down the heat for Daniel, instead of turning down the heat for the children of Israel, instead of turning down the heat for Joseph, God turns up the grace. Instead of turning down the heat in your life, God turns on the grace. Peter knew something about suffering, and Peter said this in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Because he's drawing you in closer and closer to the image of Jesus. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He lived in the 1600s. These authors' writings are all available, by the way. You can look them up yourselves. And Thomas Watson wrote in 1670, a very simple way to summarize Romans 8.28 when he was reading it. A sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. Amen to that. I teach you a lot because hard times teach. I am way more kind, way more patient, way more sympathetic at this stage in life than I was in my 20s. And I thought I was pretty patient back then. I thought I was kind back then. Well, maybe not so much, but I've learned. I've learned through hard times. I've learned to be more sympathetic. I've learned to be more patient, to be more compassionate. I've definitely learned how to be more gentle because hard times teach to the degree that God can even use the evil of sin as a mechanism to bring about good. And that has to be true, church. That has to be true if the all things can be taken at face value. Because here's what happens with sin in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, sin in your life causes you to despise sin. What happens when you despise sin? Especially failure in your own life. Well, when we fail, weakness becomes evident and we're driven to seek God. We're driven to seek Him for restoration. God causes even sin to be used for good, but the ultimate supreme reality of turning all things to good is seen in the death of Jesus. God took the ultimate evil, which Satan himself delivered, to turn into the ultimate good. The ultimate gift of God is seen in the death of Jesus. It's the greatest conceivable gift that could be given to you. So bear down in verse 28 again. Look with me one more time at the screen. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now I said how you define good is really, really crucial. Going forward, I have to look at good the way that God would look at good. What Paul writes of here is not always what I think of good. In, in this verse in verse 29, as you go forward in Romans 8:28, go to 29, the good is actually identified as the conformity to the image of Jesus. That's the good that he's doing in your life. Now with that in mind, just think this thought through. I bet you would agree with this. Advances in your character, things that have shaped you over a period of time, more often than not have come to you as a result of hard things that you're going through. All right? The advances in your character, more often than not are a result of hard things that you've gone through. You want an example of that? Just look at the United States military. The military knows six weeks of basic training will shape and conform you They will physically shape you and mentally shape you, and they know they can do it in six weeks of basic training. But no one signs up up for the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the National Guard, the Coast Guard. Nobody signs up for that saying, I can't wait for basic training. Everybody who's gone through basic training would say, that wasn't so much fun, but it was producing the end result. The military are specialists at that for that reason, it's why you and I don't like to pray, God, do whatever you have to do to bring about your purpose. Pray for your nation that way. Pray for your children that way. Pray for your next-door neighbor that way. It'll revolutionize your way of thinking when you pray for yourself that way. God, do whatever you have to do to bring about your purpose in my life. I'm convinced as I read God's word and I study it and I've done it for so many years, I'm convinced of this. No matter your situation, your sin history, your pain history, even your lack of faith, even a temporary harm that you're gonna suffer from, God will use that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ for your benefit, even if it's a thorn in the flesh. Here's how I know that. I know that from this next phrase, to work together. It's captured in the Greek language in one word, synergeo. You see it in your notes this morning, you see it up on the screen. It's where we get the English word synergy from. The business world has captured and and taken that word and used it for their benefit in the last two decades. Synergy is the thought of multiple individuals coming together within a business because the sum of many minds working together is better than one person independently. Synergy produces a great end result. A synergato is kind of like that thought. Look with me on the screen as you see that. To cooperate, to help with, to work together, that's part of the thought. But here's what's going on biblically. We can put our minds around it this way. In the natural world, in the medical world, there are components which, when they come together, are really beneficial for you but separate, they're not so great. One of those is sitting on your table or will be there for dinner today in the midst of a salt shaker. We call it sodium, but it's actually sodium chloride. Sodium by itself would be really, really harmful to you. Chloride or chlorine, very, very harmful. As a gas, it will kill you. But put together, man, it tastes great on your french fries. It's wonderful for seasoning your steak. That's the thought around sinner ge-o. It's It's doing something beyond its own ability. It's working together. John MacArthur really summed it up way well when he was looking at Romans 8. I want you to read just an excerpt from his writing. He said it this way. It is not that things in themselves work together to produce good. It is God's providential power and will, not a natural synergism of circumstances and events in our lives that causes them to work together for good. See, Paul's saying not all things are good, but with synergeo, with God causing them, all things are turned for good by God. God is the chemist, if you will. He's the one who's mixing it together. If you belong to him in Jesus Christ, now, David wrote about that very issue. I want you to maybe even write this down in the margin of your Bible. Look at the book of Psalms with me very quickly. Paul or David wrote about this very issue, Psalm 2510. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. How, how, David? Who is that true for? To these people, to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. That means no matter the road that you're on this morning, I don't know what you're walking through right now. Those of you who are watching online, I don't know what you're walking through. Same for everybody in the auditorium. I don't know what you're personally encountering. But no matter the road that you're on or that you've been on, Jesus will take that and he can turn that into loving kindness for you. Sometimes that might mean that he saves you from going through a horrible car accident by allowing your car to break down. You don't know the things that God has spared you from, but sometimes that might mean on the reverse, letting you go through a tragedy in order to conform you and draw you closer to the image of Christ or so that people watching you can be drawn to Jesus Christ so that you can look back eventually and say, oh, I get it. I get it now. I received an email from someone this week who sent me a note saying that in their family, a family member of theirs would have never come to the place where they're willing to discuss the things of Jesus were it not for COVID-19. I know of three individuals who came to faith in Jesus in the last three weeks through virtual church because they are willing to watch in a way that they wouldn't have previously watched or come to a church service is God at the work and in, in work at work in the midst of that absolutely he is we we see God working so we can say I I get it now that absolutely demands that we are the ones who keep his ways that we belong to him if we want that purpose to be working through us Let me show you an example of Moses was constantly trying to drill this into the heads of the children of Israel as he's leading them from Egypt into the promised land. I'll give you an example of that. When Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said it this way. Verse 15, God led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Uh, My wife would be out at that point. You got snakes crawling around and scorpions, right? Like, I don't want anything to do with this. But God's taking them through the midst of this, thirsty ground where there's no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do good for you in the end. So God didn't lead his people in order to do evil to them, but to bring about good. And the good sometimes comes in the way of refining you in a way that you can't possibly see. I'm saying this for you, especially if you're from a hospital bed this morning. Even in the midst of your awful circumstances, even when it seems hopeless, God's word says things like this, 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. i got to be honest with you, New Hope, I don't really like the fact that Paul called it momentary light affliction, right? Because it doesn't feel like that in the midst of what individuals are going through, and I know individuals who are going through horrific things, it does not feel momentary and it does not feel light. But from God's perspective, it's just an eye blink and it's producing in you the weight of glory. Now there's a qualifier. This amazing promise has to have a hook. This verse has been the most misused verse I've ever heard. People want to claim, all things work together for good for everybody. Well, that's not true according to God's word. This amazing promise belongs specifically to a group of people. Verse 28, it says this, those who love God, those who are called, and it's talking about the effectual calling. It's talking about when God called me at 14 years of age. I'm walking down Lewis Street in Whitehall, Michigan. I just left a youth event. I'm a teenager, 14 years of age, and I'm looking up at the starry sky, black velvet background and brilliant stars piercing the sky. I realized how massive and awesome this creator is. And for whatever reason, God used natural revelation to drive me to my knees because that very night when I went home and went to sleep, I had the most horrible dream I've ever had. And all these years later, I can remember as a 14-year-old laying on a stone table in my dreams with flames shooting up around me and I couldn't make any sense of it. And in a cold sweat, I went down to my mom and I said, Mom, this is what just happened to me in my dream. And my mom's response to me was, Mark, did something happen to you last night on your way home that's still haunting you? And I told her about my encounter just looking at the creation of God in the midnight sky. She said, it sounds to me like God's working on your heart and maybe he's trying to get your attention. And I knew, because I knew that I knew without telling her, that I had been pretending to be a Christian. All those years up to age 14, I had fooled people in church. I had fooled people in my family, but I never fooled God And God caused an effectual call on me. I didn't hear an audible voice. I was just responding to the reality that I had never surrendered my life to Jesus. That's what Paul's writing about here. It happens when God called you from death to life. When he calls you from darkness to light. I know I'm in an auditorium full of individuals who have surrendered to the call of God. And I don't mean that you went into occupational ministry. I mean you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. That's what he's writing about here. So in verse 28, he says, those who love God, somebody came up to me after the nine o'clock service and said, "I, I really clicked with that part because God says in all of humanity, there is only two categories of humans, those who love him and those who hate him. It's not based on race, nationality, creed, birth date. It's not based on skin color. It's based on whether or not you love God Or you hate God because Jesus said it this way. Look at me on the screen. He who is not with me is against me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. And he's God. And God the Son says, you're not with me, you're against me. You either love God or you hate God. It's the only two categories. So we need to acknowledge all things won't work together for good for everyone. All things don't work together for everybody. The promise that God will shape all things for good is not true for everyone. There are things that need to be true for this promise to apply. And one is that you love God. And the other is that you're called according to his purpose. And Paul says if, if you don't love God, you can't claim this promise. And if you're not called according to his word, you can't claim this promise the the person who has no interest in Jesus their final optimism is foolish to think that everything's just going to work out in the end things are not going to work out well for that one unless they enter into a relationship leaving god completely out of the mix is ultimately going to end very very badly so, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 2, look on the screen. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. And he's talking about people who've rejected Jesus. So, how we respond to God's activity definitely directly affects our earthly future and our eternal future. For this reason, from an earthly point of view, a man may look like he's doing really poorly. He might be sitting down by the fran door right now with a cardboard sign saying, I work for food. Or he might be the individual that pulls up alongside that man with a beamer. And he's got a business suit on and he looks really good. From our point of view, we might be putting people into a category and say, well, that one looks prosperous. He's doing great. That one looks poor. He's doing terrible. But hear that. In this category, God's saying, do you love God or do you hate God? Because if he does not love God and is not called according to God's purpose... All of his experiences are not leading ultimately to good, but to misery. So if a person has pleasant things in their life and they drive a nice car and they can dress really well, he's storing up wrath for himself if he's not thanking God for those things. And if a person has misery in their life and they're walking through lots of pain, but they're not trusting God, they're storing up wrath for themselves because they have a hard and impenitent heart. So what does it mean for you this morning? What does it mean for you to love God? No, we can't love him simply by supplying his needs. God has no needs, right? We do that on earth, we give things to each other to express love, but God doesn't need things. So I can't give him anything, what does it mean to love him? To be a Christ follower is never represented as a static relationship. It's always represented in Scripture, and I know you've seen this in the parables. It's always represented by what are you producing in your life? Producing fruit, hopefully. The fruit doesn't save you, but it's an evidence that you're in relationship with God. You can do things by producing fruit in your life as an expression of your love for God. By definition, a relationship continues to develop. It has to be growing or it's not a healthy relationship. And so it grows healthier and deeper, and you go into it with your whole heart. So Jesus summed it up really well. He said it this way, John 14, 15, if you love me, here's how you love God. You will keep my commandments. See, the love comes first. You're already in the relationship with him. And as a result of that, you keep the commandments. You don't keep the commandments in order to love God, but it's a reflection of loving God. That's the kind of love that prompts you to follow God's commandments in your life and do what He's called you to do, and it's demonstrated by your daily actions. Let's finish this up. It says, those who are called. I want to bear down on that part because it's the last Greek word I'm going to give you this morning. We're just about done. Those who are called. And I told you it's talking about this effectual call. It's the Greek word kletos. In its purest form, kletos means to be invited like you receive an invitation in the mail to a Christmas party. Somebody's invited you, but there's much more going on here in the biblical word that's being used. It it actually means to be summoned, to be commanded, to come before. And as a result of the summoning, an individual who believes in Jesus is given salvation. If, If you're not hearing me clearly on this, perhaps it'll help you to see it in writing. Look at John Piper's quote on the screen. He said it this way. God's call is his effectual summoning of people into a relationship with himself. This calling takes place in accordance with God's purpose. That purpose, being ultimately, can conform us to the likeness of his son. So, in this case, the summoning means a positive response. You showed up if you're a believer in Jesus. You said, I hear that. I'm going to respond to that call. You heard God's invitation, and you responded. And from your point of view, you entered into the relationship of your own free will. But from God's point of view, you were called in accordance with his purposes. That is to say this, the salvation event in your life is never to be looked on as a lucky event in your life. Like, wow, was I fortunate to be raised in a Christian home. Or I was so fortunate to attend that church service where I heard the gospel. I was really lucky. No, never. It was God's purpose to call you. God was orchestrating that event to bring you in. It's always been his eternal purpose. So in 2020, Paul is saying for you that you can apply to yourself today. You can wear this on your sleeve over the next couple weeks going into Christmas. So that all your friends who are watching you will know. Paul is not saying that all things work together for good for Christians some of the time. When their love relationship with God is really, really good, and some things are not working out so good for Christians when they're not doing so good in their love relationship. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you were called, you were called into relationship with God, and all things work for good all the time because God is the one orchestrating all of the events according to his purpose. That's the last four words. According to his purpose. His purpose. God causes all things to work together, because that is His purpose for you this morning. That means the purposes of God are the most important reality, because God's will controls everything. God called you into a relationship on the basis of His purpose, now, into that clarity. I know it took like 25 minutes to get to this point, but hear this into that clarity. The truth of that demands your submission to that reality. Whatever you're going through, whatever 2020 has brought to you to this day, whatever it has done in your life to reshape things, it is not by accident because things don't just happen. God raises up and God puts down. He's in control of it all, both the good and the bad. As it relates for you and I this morning, we're about to pick up the cup and pick up the bread and celebrate communion. I know people at home are getting ready to do that right now too. As it relates to all of us, hear this quote from Charles Simeon to close this out. He said this back in 1833. Can they ever do enough for him who so marvelously overrules all events for them. I've told you that communion is an opportunity to witness. You get to say to your friends, the person on your right and on your left, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I belong. I'm going to compel you to take that same confidence out into the streets this week celebrate Christmas loud and large. Celebrate 2020 loud and large because God's been at work. We don't know what he's producing out of it, but he's producing something and it's gonna be good. If you read this promise accurately, it's easy to see why most people consider this to be the greatest verse in the greatest chapter in the greatest book in all of the Bible. Romans eight twenty eight that nothing happens outside of God's ability to use it for good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And any thinking person who hears that would logically say, I want that. I want that for my life. I want that to be true. Well, what has to be true of you for that to be true in your life? It must be true in your life that you belong to Jesus Christ, that you've given your life to Him as your Savior, that you've personally surrendered. If you're new to church this morning, I know a lot of people watch, new online. Here's the basic way to say this. God the Son became Jesus the man to die on the cross, and He died on a cross and was buried in the ground, but He came to life the third day. He was resurrected as evidence that God accepted the payment for your sin. And Scripture says if you believe, if you are a believer in that reality, that he died on the old rugged cross for you, then you belong to Jesus. And when you seek his forgiveness of sin, and when you seek for him to eliminate all the sin of your life, and ask for salvation, he guarantees you, he assures you that that you receive that forgiveness instantly. In other words, you can begin again. You belong to him. Therefore, the promise of God of Romans 8, 28 applies to you. If you belong to Jesus, nothing can touch you outside of the purposes of God. That's a reason to celebrate this morning. And that's what communion is. Communion is a celebration of what Jesus did for you to put you in that relationship place with God. So in our tradition, I always read from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to do that to you as you sit and ponder what Jesus has done for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's giving us the commands specifically of how to carry out communion. And this is what he tells us in verse 23. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what you're about to do. You're about to witness to the reality of what he did for you. So you wouldn't want to participate in this if you weren't a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul gives such a huge warning in verse 27. He says it this way, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup we give you time right now before you come and pick up the elements, either in the front here or in the back. Pick up a cup, and the bread is in there. It's a two-cup system. and Take it back to your seat and hold it, and I'll talk you through the rest. But right now, this time for you is to examine your relationship with the Heavenly Father. If you're able to stand, can I invite you to stand with me? I'm going to ask you to do that at home as well. In the privacy of your own home, you've got family members maybe around you, or maybe you're all by yourself, go ahead and stand with us. We're told on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up bread. He said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. We're told that in the same meal, he held up a cup. He said, this cup would represent the blood, the new blood, the new covenant, and to drink it in remembrance of Him. Father, I thank You for the witness of this church. In the midst of a pandemic, You have given us a reason to celebrate and praise You. You're working in the midst of this, even if we can't always see it. So I praise you for the witness of these individuals who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are willing to be bold about it. Send us out now, Father, with your blessing. Use us this week, not just this afternoon, but use us in the weeks ahead as we come towards Christmas that we would celebrate well that you are at work. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope. <clears throat> Never a good thing when your wife says your zipper's unzipped. <laughs>